This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to our Spark Theatre on George Street on our opening day of the book festival. Uh, my name is Roland Gulliver. I'm the Associate Director for the book festival. I'm delighted to welcome you all here. Amazed uh, to see you all out <laughs> on a Saturday night. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I realised as I said amazed there that I shouldn't have sounded so surprised <laughs> uh, because we are here to see Graham McRae Burnett. Um, Graham is one of Scotland's brightest literary talents, winner of the author, author of the Year category for the 2017 Sunday Herald Cultural Awards. I think someone's cheering that outside for you. Uh, born and brought up in Kilmarnock. Uh, he's been a teacher in Prague, Bordeaux, Porto, London, before returning to Glasgow. Uh, his first novel, The Disappearance of Adele Bordeaux, was published in 2014. Uh, and was received a New Writers Award from the Scottish Book Trust and was long, lust, long listed, it might have been long lusted for as well. Um, <laughs> Definitely. By the way there is a sex scene on page 63. <laughs> um, um, it's very unsuccessful sex. <laughs> Autobiographical, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <it's laughs> uh, well, it's Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's pic everyone who's read it, yeah. which is not many, is now picturing me in that scene. <laughs> I'm picturing myself too. Unsuc unsuccessful sex <laughs> yeah. on uh, a Saturday night on George Street. Uh, his second <laughs> novel, his bloody... We'll, we'll eventually get through the introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His second novel, The Bloody Pro Project, uh, concerns a brutal triple murder in a remote Scotland Highland community in the 1860s. It was lauded by critics, hugely popular with readers, and won the Saltire Society Fiction Book of the Year Award, the Vrai Nederland Thriller of the Year Award, and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the LA Times Book Award. And it's been published in over 20 countries. Oh, you're right, yeah, there you go. Most, most recently in Farsi, believe it or not. Uh, in fa yeah. Farsi. Uh, and was one of those unique... I shouldn't say that, but it was, a, it was quite uh, an impact on the bookish long list because it sold marvellously well, as well as being critically acclaimed, which is always quite uh, an inspiring thing to happen. So his new book, The Accident on the A35, is the second in the Raymond Bruni... Brunet trilogy, and returns us to the small town of San Luis and the world of Inspector Gorski. He's also, as I hope you've all noticed, uh, this year's book festival theme is freedom, and as part of that we have published a collection of stories called The Freedom Papers in partnership with Gutter Magazine, and Graham is one of the contrib contributors to this collection, which you'll be able to buy after the event, and it'll be signed. Uh, we hope, actually, that you'll, uh, over your 18 days of the book festival, you will collect signatures, like... Graham and I may have collected Panini stickers back in the 80s. We did. Well, I did, yeah. yeah see, I, I, um, I, I had to yeah. on that one. I, I was a West Brom fan at the time, and uh, I always wanted to get Willie Johnson. I was heartbroken when he got sent home from the 78 World Cup. <laughs> uh, never got over it. And he'll tell you that story at the signing. Uh, but please give a very, very warm welcome for Graham McRae Burnett. Thank you. So would you like to read from the book? Would you like to talk a little uh, bit? Shall book? I explain what the book's about and yes. then do a couple of readings? Go on. Um, so, yeah, this is the latest book, The Accident on the A35. Um, it's about an accident, a car accident, which takes place on the A35, 
which is not the road from Honington to Southampton, <laughs> um, as I'm sure you all know. It's a road from uh, Saint Louis in the Alsace in France to Strasbourg. Um, it's a sequel to my first book, which is also set in this very unremarkable small town called Saint Louis. Um, in the disappearance of Adele Badeau, um, for reasons I can't quite remember, um, I, I presented the book as a translation of another author's work, Raymond Bruni. And in, in the book, uh, there's a biography of Raymond Bruni, um, who was a, a, a writer who lived in the town of Saint Louis. And it, we learned that his own father was killed in an accident, a car accident on the A35. And it was a, it was a minor mystery in the local papers at the time. So um, the accident on the A35 is Raymond Bruni's kind of fictional exploration of these events in his own fictional life. Okay? <laughs> All clear? Um, so the, 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 the novel opens with, with the accident, and um, the cop from the first book, George Gorsky, is uh, called in to investigate the accident, and he's one of the central characters. And the other central character is uh, Raymond Bartelme, who's a 17-year-old son of uh, Bertrand Bartelme, who's the lawyer who's killed in the accident. The mystery very gripping mystery um, of the book is where um, Bertrand Bartholomé had been on the night of his disappearance. But as with my first book, really what, what kind of drives me and drives the narrative forward, hopefully, is the, is the characters. That's what I'm most interested in. I, like, I want to get inside the minds of these two characters, and it's really, um, the book's really about the impact of this event on the characters rather than the solving of the mystery as such. So um, I'm, as usual, underselling um, <laughs> my book. It's I, apparently very exciting. And the car chase <laughs> and explosions <laughs> uh, on page 63. Um, but so, I, I think yeah. you are underselling because I think uh, the idea of exploring the character is, is, where, the, is where the drama is, is where... Yeah, I mean, I find the, the, the sort of small events of life, the minutiae of life, um, you know, I find these things gripping. And I think when I'm, when I'm reading, you know, work that I really love, I mean, um, Patrick Hamilton, who wrote Hangover Square, most famously probably, uh, his, his novels are very much about the small details of life and, you know, making a date with somebody and then they don't turn up. And this is high drama. And I find that stuff very, very compelling, and there's a lot of that stuff in my books. I mean, in the first, in the first book, um, the central character, Manfred Bauman, he goes to the same restaurant for lunch every day, and a certain day he changes his order, and he feels that this is a hugely dramatic event in his life, and everyone is going to be throwing up their arms, saying, oh, my God, Manfred Bauman changed his order. So it's, this is what's the narrative that's going on inside his head, and that's, that's kind of what interests me. Shall I read a couple yes, of bits? Bit. Um, I'm going to read two sh pretty short extracts. One um, where we meet Raymond Bartelme for the first time, and then I'll just a short part about George Gorsky. I'm going to stand. Should I lectern or no lectern? Uh, it depends how formal you're feeling. I don't know. Does that seem formal? I feel like I'm going to give a, a lecture. <laughs> Good evening, Thank ladies you. and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm extremely intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I quite like the lectern. It gives me somewhere to hide my other glasses. <laughs> so um, Raymond Bartome is a 17-year-old boy. And when we meet him, he's doing what all 
French 17-year-old boys are doing in their bedrooms? No. <laughs> He's reading a John Paul Sartre novel. <laughs> <coughs> Raymond Bartome was sitting on a straight-backed chair in the middle of his bedroom, reading The Age of Reason. The only light in the room came from the angle-poised lamp on the desk by the window. Aside from the bed, there was a worn velvet sofa, but Raymond preferred the wooden chair. If he tried to read somewhere more comfortable, he found his attention drifting from the words on the page. Besides, his friend Stefan had told him that Sartre himself always sat on a straight-backed chair to read. He had returned to the chapter in which Ivich and Mathieu slashed their hands in the Sumatra nightclub. Raymond was enthralled by the idea of a woman who would, for no apparent reason, draw a knife across the palm of her hand. He read for the umpteenth time. The flesh was laid open from the ball of the thumb to the root of the little finger, and the blood was oozing slowly from the wound. And her friend's reaction was not to rush to her aid, but instead to take the knife and impale his own hand to the table. What was most striking about the scene, however, was not the bloodletting itself, but the sentence that followed it. The waiter had seen many such incidents. Raymond longed to be in a place like the Sumatra, among the sort of people who impaled their hands to the table. Who doesn't? <clears throat> Such an establishment could certainly not be found in a backwater like San Luis, with its respectable cafes where you were served by middle-aged women who asked after your parents and to whom Raymond always behaved with perfect courtesy. Raymond was not sure what to make of the scene. He had discussed it at length with Yvette and Stéphane in their booths at the Café des Vosges. Stéphane had been matter-of-fact. He had an answer for everything. It's an act gratuit, old man, he said with a shrug. It's meaningless, that's the point. Yvette had disagreed. It wasn't meaningless. It was an act of rebellion against the bourgeois manners represented by the woman in the fur coat at the next table. Raymond had nodded earnestly, not wishing to contradict his friends, but neither interpretation satisfied him. Neither explained the frisson he got from reading the scene. A frisson not dissimilar to that which he experienced when he passed close enough to certain girls in the school corridors to inhale their scent. Perhaps the point was not to reduce the scene to a meaning, to explain it, but simply to experience it as a kind of spectacle. The, the, um, the lectern is entirely redundant. Um, I feel like I kind of flirted with it, raised its expectations. <laughs> And now I've abandoned it completely. This microphone is doing nothing. Um, at the end of Adele Boudot, uh, Gorski's wife, in time-honored fa fashion, has left him. Uh, the action of this book takes place a few weeks later. Gorski's at home. For the first few days after his wife's departure, Gorski had taken advantage of the situation by, sa by shaving in the ensuite bathroom. It was an act of defiance. As a rule, he shaved in the cramped WC on the ground floor. Barely a month after they had married and moved into the house on Rue de Village Neuf, he had been banished from the ensuite. He took too long and left a ring of whiskers in the wash basin. The ensuite became Céline's domain, 
And even in her absence, Gorski felt that he was encroaching on her territory. So he reverted to using the WC downstairs. Then, after a week or so, as if to test the limits of his freedom, he had decided not to shave at all. After all, with Celine gone, he could do whatever he wanted. Over his morning coffee that same day, he had smoked a cigarette in the kitchen. He could not bring himself to leave the butt in the ashtray, however. What if this turned out to be the day that Celine chose to return? All that day, Gorski had felt self-conscious in his unshaven state, but no one at the station commented on his unkempt appearance. In the afternoon, he called on an elderly widow in Rue Saint-Jean, who claimed some tools had been stolen from her garden. When she opened the door, she peered at him suspiciously. A lapdog yapped at her feet. Gorski ran his hand over the stubble on his chin. He felt slovenly and unprofessional. The tools, it turned out, were in the garden shed. Oh, yes, the woman had said. I remember putting them in there now. But she had not apologized for wasting Gorski's time. Thank you. With uh, the accident on the A35, why, why were you inspired to return? I guess, I think for many, many readers who've discovered his bloody project, yeah. to return to the accident on the A35. Well, I mean, I was very lucky because I just, I, I'd finished the first draft of this book just before I got on the Booker shortlist and suddenly became, you know, slightly more well-known. And uh, so I, I'd always planned to write this book, mm. and it, that was useful for me at the time because otherwise you could feel this kind of pressure to do something that would be the thing that people would expect you to do, which would be to write another book about a murder in 19th century Highland Scotland. Um, and I don't want to be the, the kind of author who does that. Um, but the reason that I wanted to return to this milieu is mm. because I love the milieu of the first book, and I felt, you know, this is a town where there's just this um, tremendous sense of routine of unchangingness mm. and between the first between my first visit which was about 2000 or year 2000 and then when I was actually writing Adele Badeau because it stuck in my mind so much I'd only been there for three hours <laughs> and um the most of the first book is set the central location is called the restaurant de la cloche which is a real place it's got a different name because my publisher who's here made me change it <laughs> it's called the restaurant de la poste if you want to go <laughs> um and uh, I, w I went back, and those 10 years or 12 years apart, I had exactly the same lunch. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the menu hadn't changed. You know, the, the furniture was in the same place. I, and I on honestly felt that some of the regulars were sitting at the same table. So th this sense of routine, mm. uh, I find, and the, the people who live in a place like this. And what's interesting about San Luis is that it's a border town. And border towns are places that people pass through they're, they're on their way somewhere else. You don't stop in the border town. But people are born and grow up and live and die there. And I kind of wonder about what it's like to live in a place where people are constantly passing through, going elsewhere to places that are more exciting. And just, I mean, that, you know, reading that passage about Raymond, who's, you know, 17, so you kind of expect he might aspire to uh, want to go somewhere else. Um, but, you know, there he is. He's, he's reading this Sartre novel set in a, a Paris nightclub, and he yearns to go there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think there is, I suppose, some sort of 
autobiographical mm. element. I grew up in a smallish town, Kilmarnock, and you know, I had this desire to leave and go to other places, you know, and not to be the guy who married somebody from school. <laughs> Not that any of them were interested. I did ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to spread my net further. Um, but um, in, in that sense of, of, of Raymond and, and his yearning to leave, mm. um, I was struck in that reading just now where um, Inspector Gorski, his yeah. wife has left him, and yeah. he could do whatever he wants yeah. to do. Uh, yeah. And the parallel stories between mm. um, Raymond and Inspector Gorski are very, are very interesting because they're both at these points of of freedom and of, yeah, of going absolutely. On, some, on some journeys. Yeah, yeah. Because Raymond feels that the death of his father is a kind, he feels it as a kind of, his father was quite an oppressive, uh, authoritarian character. So when he learns, as he just ha is about to, that his father has, has been killed in this accident, he feels it as a kind of liberation and he can do, he can now um, explore the world. And he's also 17, and this is the point where you are exploring the world. Whereas Gorski, his wife has left him, but Gorski, is a character who, um, sort of con contrary to the other characters in the book, he's actually he's a sort of he's a sort of contented character in a way. He's actually quite happy. Um, he's settled for being in Saint Louis. When he was younger, you know, he wanted to go to Marseille or Paris or something, mm. and op, you know, not um, investigate crimes like there are some tools missing. <laughs> you know, this is the life of a cop in San Luis, and people off when he goes to talk to somebody and he says, I'm the chief inspector of San Luis, and they say, oh, what, we have a chief inspector? You know, <laughs> why? <laughs> you know, there's not much happening there. But actually, he's quite contented in his life. So when, you know, he is, the, the, reg the marriage regime falls mm -hmm. apart for him, you know, and this, maybe we'll return to this later, he has <laughs> this freedom, but he doesn't know what to do with it. Mm. Or he, maybe he doesn't even want it. You know, he wants the stable environment. He wants his wife back. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's quite, I find that quite interesting. Yeah, uh, and the, with, uh, it's interesting looking at, at Raymond and, the, and the, the journey he goes through. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> he has... More bad sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, quite a lot of bad sex. Uh, he has this, this strange relationship with, it, with his friends. And yeah. they, they talk to him and say, well... You, you, you act as though you don't care. Yeah. But he, he's trying to find out what he, he yeah, yeah. cares about. Well, I mean, I think what he's doing... So Raymond has these... They're mentioned in the, in the, in the reading, Yvette and Stefan. They're kind of his buddies at school. And Yvette is a kind of earnest uh, young, young girl. Um, and they're both Stefan and Yvette are much brainier than, um, than Raymond. Um, and Yvette is kind of his girlfriend. Um, where are we going with this? We, we, we talked and about I, this before. We were I, going to forget the question. I was, then moving, I was thinking about um, my next question, though. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we're talking about uh, Raymond and trying to find yeah, his, no. his meaning. And yes, absolutely. So, yes, yeah, and he, he, start, he, he starts investigating where his father had been on the night of his death as well, and this takes him to the, the neighbouring town of Malus, which is a kind of provincial but larger town in, in the Alsace, and he meets these other characters a bit cooler and just more worldly than his friends back in San Luis, so he starts kind of, he starts drinking beer and acting kind of cool, and, you know, so he goes back and he's a bit sneering towards poor old Yvette and Stefan, but what I think he's doing is adopting a persona, and um, he is trying out different ways of being in the world, and I think, um, well, I think that it's, it's not necessarily right to say we all do that. We, we all present different faces 
um, to the world in different aspects of our life, you know, whether that's the professional aspect, the family aspect. We, we don't always behave in exactly the same way with our parents. Mine are over there. Um, <laughs> than we do when we're out with our friends at a karaoke bar. Um, you know, so you know, that's, that's what he's doing, and he is um, presenting and trying out these new ways of being and trying to fit in with this different crowd. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and Gorski, to some extent, you know, because Gorski finds himself in Strasbourg with the sort of big shot cop who Gorski is. Gorski's a very decent man, and he would never do anything sort of... He doesn't do any of that sort of bad cop stuff of, you know, manufacturing evidence or... He, I mean, he doesn't really have to. He certainly wouldn't... Gorski would never beat anybody up except himself. Um, so Gorski also finds himself having to act, go along with other people's behaviour. Um, and it's not like I set out when I'm writing a book to consciously think this is what I'm doing. But I think as you write, as I write the book, or write a book, you know, you realise what's coming out of it. And, you know, the character in the previous book, Man from Bowman, um, he is a character who exists so self-consciously in his head that he's constantly appraising the imagined reactions of other people towards his actions. And, it, you know, it's a, I think the, the term for it is hyper-self-consciousness. And I kind of um, suffer from it somewhat as well. I mean, I, I'm walking along the road, you know, I, or if, I, you know, if I'm out on my bike, I, I cycle around Canal Pass around Glasgow quite a lot. And whenever I see somebody on an isolated piece of cycle track, I imagine that they are, a few minutes later they are murdered, and either I, they will be, I will be called as a witness, um, <laughs> or I will become a suspect, and I, I will then have to recall. And now I imagine that everybody thinks like this. <laughs> I mean, if, and from the laughter, I'm guessing that that's not true. Um, I mean, you just, you just yesterday, um, I, there, I'm referred to the incident in Disappearance of Adele Bedou when Manfred changes his order in the restaurant, and... Um, I, I go to the Mitchell Library to, to work, to write, uh, which is about a 10-minute walk from, from where I live. And usually in the morning, I kind of do some email and stuff and then get ready and go out uh, reluctantly with the weight of the world. Oh, my God, I've got to write some words. And I, 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 I go into the Sainsbury's on the way and buy a ham and cheese sandwich. Uh, the, there's also, a, on the way, a Tesco and a co-op. Um, but the ham and cheese sandwich from Sainsbury's is clearly the best. Um, the, the co-op sandwich, the, the, the bread is much too fluffy. Um, it's, it's like it just disappears in your mouth. Um, so I go in there, and uh, there's always the same guy working. He, 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 he does the, 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 he's the cashier nearest the window. I always buy the same sandwich from him. And, you know, we say, oh, how are you doing? His name's Max. And that's it. And off I go to the library. Just um, yesterday, I was actually walking back from the direction of the Mitchell Library towards my house, and I was hungry. But you can't buy a prepackaged sandwich and eat it in your house. That's just, <laughs> there's just something wrong with that. Uh, nobody would do that, would they? Um, you have to eat it out of the house. So I bought, some, I bought two rolls and some patty to make my own sandwich. And then Max was one of the cashiers working, and I'm in the queue. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's Max going to say? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to come up with, like, some plausible story of, like, why? What? You'd be like, what's wrong with the ham and cheese sandwich, you know? 
and I, I would have to explain that actually usually I'm on my way to the library where I go to write and today I'm on my way back from the library and it's wrong to eat a sandwich in the house that you haven't made yourself. And uh, so I was getting very nervous. I think it was actually sweating. And, uh, and Max, of course, I had to go buy it from Max. And guess what? He didn't even mention it. You know. It's like he, he doesn't care. Um, I was so hurt. Um, so I think that's, I mean, I, am, I, I have always imagined, especially until the first book came out, I imagined that that's how everyone thinks. And it's only now that I realize that possibly it isn't. <laughs> yeah, they, people just go around blindly buying any sandwich they want, whenever they want, eating it in the house. Shocking. Yeah. I, I, I have that same thing where if you, you know, you, you've met the Tesco person, yeah. and, and, you say, and then you see him on the street, and you're kind of like, oh, hi. Yeah, yeah but they yeah. don't remember you. Yeah, no. no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's that, I guess, <laughs> that, that attention for detail, mm. that kind of taking things down to the very... The, the little nuances. Yeah. Is, that, is that absolutely? I is mean, that what inspires you as a writer? Yeah. Is that what well, I mean, that that's what I, you know, sometimes you know when you write, when I'm writing, you know, sometimes you're you're, you're pushing to get write some words, and you're hoping it's going to kind of catch fire, mm. um, and you feel like yes, I nailed that. Yeah. And um, for me, um, uh, it's when these de details of the, the way a character thinks about a situation they're in, um, that's for me when it catches fire and excites me when I'm writing. Um, and, you know, you, you, you have no idea whether it's going to excite a re or interest a reader, but when that happens, you feel like, you, yeah, that's what I wanted to achieve in this scene. And often, even when I've written, done a first draft of a scene where, you know, you, okay, you've got two characters and they're going to discuss this thing that's just happened or something, uh, you've got maybe a vague idea of how it's going to play out. Um, but, you know, I always go back to those, even when I feel it's gone quite well, which isn't very often. And, I, you know, I go back and I think, what's this character thinking at this point? You know, and maybe that little thing that happened reminds them or something of his childhood. And I think of it as kind of enriching the scene. And I think that's, um, that's that, yeah, that's what can make a scene rich and make it live rather than just dialogue. Hmm. I mean, and, you know, my, I always maintain absolute fidelity to point of view in, my, in any scene, so you only ever know what one character is thinking. Hmm. So they're also always paranoid <laughs> or trying to analyze what the other person means by the, by the interaction. Hmm. So I find um, it leads to me completely overusing the phrase as if. <laughs> so I would now write, Roland, Roland laughed as if he found it amusing. <laughs> <laughs> or was it a rather patronizing laugh? You know, and so because I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually know why yeah. you were laughing, mm. so I'd have to, and I can't, as the author, narrator yeah, yeah. of my own book, I can't go in your head because I'm in my head. Mm. And I think that's, that makes the, the experience of reading the book is claustrophobic because you, yeah. you're, you maintain that point of view. In both the French books, it, it switches between two characters, mm. but never at the same time. And then his bloody project, you know, the bulk of it, you know, it's, this is Roddy's account. Roddy has no idea what anybody else is thinking. Mm. You know, so we don't know the motives of the other characters. Even if Roddy's, Roddy might speculate about them, but we wouldn't necessarily agree with his view of what's going on. So it's, it's interesting, you, you're very stringent on that one, one point of view. Absolutely. But actually, the, the many, many possibilities of what that one point of view could be seeing. So yeah. 
well, the, the fact you have the, the Sartre quote at the beginning of the book saying it could be true, it could yeah. be false, it could be so somewhere in between. <laughs> Yeah, um, but, uh, yeah. We're a book festival. We can be pretentious. Yeah, I know, I know. No, but uh, actually, it's not pretentious. I, I just, I mean, this is from. Uh, just, well, the thing is, this is from. So actually, it's very important because in the we have the foreword. That's by me. That, that tells how how I come across the manuscript or how the manuscript is covered. Then we have the title page. So the the Sartre epigram mm. epigraph. I can never remember which one. Oh, epigraph. No. Um, is from Raymond Bruni, not mm. from me. That's true. Because Bruni. So that, but that, so, although you're wanting to be from the character's one point of view, as an author, you're mm. kind of filtering the points of view. So, mm. it's you know, in, a, in that way of it's Graham McRae Burnett writing a novel that he's pretending is Raymond Bruni, but it's got an introduction from a, a Graham McRae Burnett. So yes. There's a, there's a <laughs> multiple. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, yeah, I do, I do find all that really good fun. Mm. And what, what Sartre, what he, the quote from Sartre, and th th this is from John Paul Sartre's own autobiogra autobiography, which is notoriously unreliable. Mm. Uh, you know, it's basically a sort of impressionistic account of his growing up. And he says, and the, the quote is, what I have just written is false, true. Neither true nor false. <laughs> and, um, you know, and at the back of the book, mm. in my afterword, I speculate about how much of... Raymond Brunet's novel relates to real events in Raymond Brunet's life. <laughs> and so it's, it's all a play on yeah. these kind of levels of uh, what is real, yeah. what is fiction, whether it matters to a reader, whether something's a fiction, whether mm -hmm. it matters, whether it's written by Raymond Brunet or by me, uh, how you might interpret things differently. Mm. Um, and it's not, I don't, ha I, don't, I don't do it because I... I'm trying to push a certain point of view. I'm just interested in these mm. questions. Um, and so so as, a, as a fiction writer, do you get frustrated by the idea that if it's true, it's, it's, it's better or it's more real? Or you know, I, I get frustrated by the film that's based on a true story. Yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by true as well, because, I mean, there's a... Going back to Patrick Hamilton again, and mm. uh, he wrote a novel... Uh, uh, called The Midnight Bell, which is entirely set in a pub, so of course it's one of my favourite books. <laughs> and uh, there's a description of the, the way the waiter holds his tray when he mm. is taking an order. And that is so precise and so true that when you read mm -hmm. those two or three sentences, you see that waiter holding his tray in front of him, you know, forward facing. Um, and that's true. Mm. And that's, you know, as a reader of that novel, it completely that tiny little detail brings it to life. Um, it's completely irrelevant to me whether that waiter barman existed in real life or whether the pub mm. exists or whether the whole thing is a figment of mm. Patrick Hamilton's imagination. But, you know, the sort of idea of truth and when we read fiction, um, you know, things, we want it to ring true. And if it doesn't ring true, and that goes from the mm. setting, if you, you, you describe something and people, I want to have a vivid picture of the setting of a novel in my head, and the, if a character behaves, you want the characters to behave in a way that you find psychologically plausible. So they're true to themselves or true to the character. So I think within fiction, there's a kind of truth that you're mm. striving for. It doesn't, um, I mean, with his bloody project, I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm almost tempted <laughs> to ask, I mean, I'm not assuming people have read it, but um, at least half the people who read that book think it's a true story. And it's all real, um, and uh, I that doesn't I don't mind that 
apart from the fact that I get no credit for having <laughs> written it, they actually think I just found the documents <laughs> and stuck them in a book, you know. Mm. Which um, is a compliment to your fiction writing. It is a compliment because what it means, if you read 50,000 words, um, first-person account of a 17-year-old crofter, and there's not a, a moment where you go, oh, that doesn't sound... That goes to this mm. point of truth. It, it, it doesn't ring true. It jerks you out of the out of the fictional world of the book, and we don't like that. We like mm. to be immersed and feel, forget that it's fiction. And all that stuff is very interesting because we, when we're reading, we know that something... We know it's not real, and yet... We want it to feel <laughs> real, to make you know, real. and we, we don't remind ourselves that, oh, it's just a novel. That's annoying. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do it all the time. Mm. Sorry. Um, yeah. So talking of, you were talking about Patrick Hamilton and mm. this, the, how the waiter held mm. the tray and, yeah. and that whole kind of looking at how describing that, um, probably a bit clumsy in my way, but it leads us into your freedom paper. <laughs> so smooth. I know. <laughs> I had it, I know. I oh know, sorry. It was... Uh, oh no, I liked it. It was good. Um, but yes, so <laughs> the Freedom Papers... Uh, it's the first day we're going to hold it all together. Yeah. Uh, freedom Papers... We can hold it up together. Is, is, um <laughs> Have you noticed that we're also... Um, we, we planned this before. Um, we, we decided to dress exactly. similarly. Exactly. Um, we were back on the festival yeah. site going, which this jacket? Yeah. And bizarrely, jacket? I haven't worn this jacket for months. I know. It's yeah. my... Uh, yeah. Festival psyche. Anyway, before we digress again, yes. Um, so yes, Graham has written a piece <laughs> for Freedom Papers. We've done a, a very special project where we created a piece, uh, a very special reading to go alongside it. Uh, and I won't say anything else, but we'll talk about it afterwards. Right, I'm not going to say anything about it either, either um, other than to tell you the title, which is A Minor Incident in Amsterdam. Sometime last year I was in Amsterdam for a couple of days. On the first evening, before I went back to my hotel, I wandered through the streets for a while. It was about 10 o'clock. I went into a pub. It was a traditional kind of place. Wooden floor, wooden counter, wooden tables, wooden chairs. As it was summer, most of the customers were sitting on the pavement terrace outside. Not knowing if a system of table service was in operation, I ordered a beer at the bar, paid and sat down at the table by the window. The establishment was run by two men in their mid to late fifties, both smartly turned out in crisp white shirts and black trousers. I say run by, but I don't know if they ran the place or were merely employees. I suppose on account of their age, I assumed they owned it. One of the men served the drinks and set them out on the counter, while the other waited on the tables. The bartender was of medium height, stocky and balding with a dark brown moustache. The guy waiting tables was tall, six foot two or three. His hair was grey and neatly combed. He worked at an unhurried pace, as if to demonstrate his lack of subservience. When he collected the glasses from the tables or emptied the ashtrays, he bent a little at the knee in a way that suggested his back was troubling him. Now and again, when he thought he was not being observed, he massaged his spine with the heel of his hand. It struck me that the guy behind the bar might have taken a turn waiting the tables, as he was shorter, even if he had a bad back. He wouldn't have to stoop. Most of the customers ordered their drinks from the waiter, but a few ordered at the bar. 
This latter group mostly consumed their drinks standing at the counter, making small talk with the bartender. But I was reassured that I had not acted wholly inappropriately. After a while, I got up and ordered another beer. Of course, I could have ordered it from the waiter with the bad back, but this would have revealed that I had not properly understood the system, that if you sat at the table, you ordered from the waiter. This way, it would just seem like I was the kind of guy who preferred to order his beers at the bar. In any case, I was sitting only a few feet from the counter, and it would have seemed needlessly complicated to order from the waiter, have him communicate my order to the bartender, wait for him to bring it back to me before deciding whether I was going to pay there and then or set up a tab. This with the additional complication that I had already paid for the first beer. I would furthermore have felt that we were somehow adopting the roles of master and servant and that he would feel I was deliberately setting out to humiliate him. My head. The following evening, I again had some time to kill before I went back to, to my hotel. I was free to go to another bar, to do whatever I liked, in fact, but I returned to the same place. None of the tables inside were occupied. I bought my beer and sat down on the same chair at the same table as before. The division of labor was unchanged. As on the previous evening, a few men dropped in for a quick one at the bar. About midway through my second beer, the waiter with the bad back entered from the terrace and stood two or three steps inside the doorway. His tray was stacked with empty cups and glasses. A conversation ensued. No voices were raised, but it was heated. It all became clear. Two men were brothers. They'd been running the They've been running the place together for decades. Finally, the waiter had had enough. He was fed up running back and forth between the counter and the terrace while his brother stood around doing nothing but pulling pints and chatting to the regulars. Years of built-up resentment poured forth. Bartender was impassive. What could he do? This was the way it was. The way they had always done things. If his brother felt so strongly about it, why hadn't he said something before? They could hardly start changing things now. Not after all these years. The waiter made no response. After a moment, he exhaled slowly. He placed the empties on the counter and loaded the fresh drinks that had been set out there onto his tray. Then he took them to the customers outside. The bartender glanced in my direction, but I averted my eyes. Other than myself, no one had witnessed the incident. I took my time over what was left of my drink, not wishing to appear disturbed by what had taken place. Of course, the conversation had been in Dutch, and I had not understood a word of it. They could have been talking about anything. They were probably not even brothers. They didn't even look alike. And just a word for Danny Kratz and the other musicians who put the... Yes. I, I really love that sort of Mingus-like <laughs> soundtrack. made me feel quite cool. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. See, Saturday night to the book festival. Yeah, I know. Went to karaoke. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so thank you to Danny Kratz who put together the music. Uh, as you go through the festival, you'll see there's different soundtracks for each different reading. 
uh, and finished by a freedom finale on the last day. But the, I guess because we gave the commission to the writers to look at the theme of freedom. Yeah. And I, um, for me, listening to your reading, there are, there's, there are two freedoms. There's the, the lack of freedom for those two men, mm. brothers, or whatever you kind of interpret them to be, uh, and the, the kind of the routine of life that, yeah. that holds them tightly. But then the freedom for you uh-huh. as, a, as a writer to invent their stories. Well, uh, yeah. Um, well, that's, well it's, a, it's a freedom not necessarily as a writer, as a, as a person observing yeah. a scene to you know, interpret it as I see fit, just as people interpret bits of text as they see fit. It's also, you know, I, I was very aware, you know, when it was you, Roland, that asked me to contribute, and, um, you know, it's like a very lofty theme, freedom. Like, better write something, you know, pretty profound. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, actually, I, pro- I started off, I was, like, you know, approached it in various different ways. Um, and I was writing these kind of, like, fairly... I was I was actually reading at the time when you when you asked me I was reading Simone de Beauvoir's memoir mem, mem, memoir of a dutiful daughter, as you do, and uh, I got to the end of it. Finally, it's a very long book, um, very 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 worth reading, uh, but it is long and it, it ends. She says her her childhood friend Zaza uh, dies of a, one of these diseases that people used to die of in the mid 20th century, and she says I felt that I bought my freedom at the price of my friend's life. And I was like, wow. As you know, it's like this idea that freedom is something that has to be bought and also that somebody even as uh, unremittingly rational as Simone de Beauvoir feels this kind of guilt or relates these two unrelated events. So I was, I was writing this, this piece about that. It was brilliant, really, really profound. <laughs> and then I, was, but then I just like, I felt, I felt uncomfortable about it. I felt like... Um, you know, I mean, this idea of feeling guilty about being free, because the other aspect of being asked to do is like, I am a white European guy who lives in a, some semblance of a democracy. You know, I, I am as pretty much as free as it gets. Um, and yet, I worry about buying a sandwich in Sainsbury's. <laughs> and, um, you know, I worry when I go into a bar in Amsterdam, a notoriously liberal city, where you can probably order however you want. Um, I worry about it. And to me, it's like, what is the regime in place here? And I want, you know, that's how I think of it. Um, and what, how do I conform to it? So here I am, a free, a free person. I'm, I'm looking, I'm creating these constraints on my own behavior. Uh, I mean, I, I, know I, didn't, I, I didn't write the piece with that in mind. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's funny because I didn't remember that. I kind of told this as an anecdote <laughs> when we did our, an event together mm. before. But it's one of those things that it just this little event had stuck in my mind. And, uh, you know, I went back and I just wrote it down, which I'd always planned to do anyway. And then I, as I was writing it, it kind of resonated with this theme, but in a much more indirect way. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of people, um, you know, the contributions to the, to the book are amazing and wide-ranging. Mm. And, you know, people with extraordinarily traumatic experiences to tell and, uh, you know, you know, deep and profound things to say. And then there's my thing about ordering a beer. Um, well, I, th- I, 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 I like the fact that that's in there because it adds, it, it, does, it takes it down from, you know, we explore the very, very grand themes, but yeah. going down to the little detail, and it reflects yeah. uh, what other themes of your book, you know. Well, the fact that yeah, Inspector which again, in, undeliberate then, but it's, that's the sensibility you bring to a piece mm. of writing. But it's also like, yeah, these, these ideas of freedom and power 
they're not abstract ideas. They they pertain to these tiny details of our lives, you know, that, you know, whether you go to the same bar, do you want to sit? You didn't even, I didn't, you know, often like, I didn't even like that seat, but I sat in it again because that's where I sat the night before. And so people love to establish routines. Some people more than others. Maybe other people are more rebellious than me. But I mean, I used to, I used to teach English, uh, English foreign language, and a class would come in for the first lesson and they would sit around, it's EFL, it's all very touch-feely, so everyone sits in a circle. Um, and... Uh, over the course of months, no matter what new friendships were formed amongst the class, everybody always sits in the same place as they sat in the first lesson. <laughs> I always remember that. You know, mm. nobody, if somebody moves, they're like, hey, well, you're in my seat. <laughs> it's not your seat. You sat in it once. Yeah. You're not sitting in it now. But people feel uh, discombobulated mm. by having to shift around. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's like, um, I, I'm actually quite happy with what I wrote mm. for the book, even although I do think People might be, some people might be like, what? what's this? Um, <laughs> but I think it takes, it takes a little yeah. bit of thought to look at yeah. that. And it, yeah. it reminds me particularly of Inspector Gorski and the fact that when he goes for his lunch, yeah. he refuses ah. to not order the same thing. Or how does he yeah. leave his door open in the office to give the right impression that he's both yes. boss but accessible? Yeah, and I know. Kind of, you yeah. know the, all and, um, the, the minefields we all try and exactly, exactly, absolutely. And you know, I was, you know, even when I was reading, I was, you know, I actually did practice that reading. I probably didn't seem like that, but you know, and I, 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 I used the phrase. Um, I said um, I was free to go to another bar to do whatever I liked. In fact, and it's almost exactly the phrase that's in uh, the passage I read yeah. from Gorsky, where Gorsky's you know shaming. his wife's gone. Oh, wow, okay, freedom. <laughs> okay, what I do? I'm not going to shave today. You know, um, but you know, this is like um, people maybe, you know, and this is sort of, uh, you know, people don't know what to do with freedom mm. when they get it. And, mm. uh, you know, I was watching a, an artist, a quite a long documentary about um, former East Germany. It's called DDR slash DDR. Well worth seeing if you can track it down. And, you know, there was somebody, and you often hear similar sentiments, like uh, uh, somebody from East Berlin saying, yeah, yeah, suddenly we found our freedom, but we didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, you walk, you walk over to West Berlin and you, they gave, you, gave them some Deutschmarks and like, oh, right, oh, well, I'll just go home now. <laughs> um, you know, I've, mm. we've got some nice furniture that's now super chic. Um, so, you know, the, these are the kind of things that like, sort of, I suppose, they, if they recur in things I write, they must be my preoccupations. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm conscious of time uh, constricting our freedom. Indeed. Um, so I want to open up to you guys to ask some questions. There should be a roving microphone. Uh, my colleague over there. Uh, there's a lady at the front with a question. Can I say, first of all, that I really loved your book. Thank it you It was absolutely much. tremendous. Thank you. And I found it very real. Yes. And true, I think. There we go. Thank the, you. The Thank question. you for your question. Mm -hmm. Next. <laughs> the question is, um, what would the book have lost, or do you think it would have lost something if you hadn't done the forward and the afterward? Um, I think, I mean, the, the vast, vast majority of both these books, the Raymond Bruni books, Gorsky books, the vast, vast majority of my work, 98%, 99%, goes into writing the novel that's in the center of the book. And with, with Adele Badeau, the sort of thing about Raymond Bruni, I kind of felt a bit like a kind of DVD extra. It kind of comes at the end of the book, and it's kind of like a bit of a twist on the book. 
um, but in a way it wasn't so fully integrated into the book. Whereas with, with the accident, I, I, was, I set out, I'm writing Raymond Bruni's novel. So I'm writing in the person, I'm, I'm adopting the persona of Raymond, uh, Raymond Bruni, my fictional French author, and he's exploring uh, these, these events in his life. Um, what, I think, I think um, if the novel in the middle of the book is not of interest to you, you don't feel it's real and the characters don't interest you, then all the, all the foreword and all this stuff absolutely doesn't mean anything. Um, I want the novel to work as a novel, and you don't need to read these bits. But I think for me, the, I, I enjoy this kind of play of like, what, what so, you know, uh, what did Raymond, the character, what Raymond, the Raymond Bruni, what did he do after his father died? Was this actually based in fact? I don't know, I just enjoy this play between these different levels of um, fiction, different fic levels of fiction. It's like a sort of Russian doll. And um, I, I find it hard to explain um, because I don't want to explain it. There's no need for me to explain it. Um, but I think, I think uh, that it's, it, it lends a, a different way of interpreting the book if you're so inclined to do so. Did you feel that it didn't really add much or? Um, it added a little, but I think especially the afterward, um, uh -huh. there were, you drew references to um, Claude Chabrol and other, uh -huh. you know, authors yeah. and such like, yeah. um, which I felt it was such a you reference in all, all these people. I'm not sure how useful that was. It was quite, quite interesting. Well, but you know, I mean, for me, it's fun. Can, I, I, mean, can I, I say one thing factually that I'd like to ask you? Yes. And then somebody else. Um, how would Raymond have known if he were actually writing this? How would he have known about Gorski and his Raymond. life? Or have I, have I got which, it all which, wrong? Which Raymond are you talking about? Uh, the Raymond actually in the book. Well, he's not writing it. Raymond Brunet is writing it. Oh, okay. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, that one out. Sorry. I love being asked uh, who wrote, who's writing the book. That's great. <laughs> uh, next, next year we'll get Raymond Brunet yeah. here. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just had a question about historical records and, uh -huh. and his body project. What did you look at to kind of get that finite, really granular detail? Yeah. And then also the way that that book's written, do you have any sort of intellectual doubts about records to be able to speak about the past in a way that we can interpret in a very like, accurate and truthful way? Um, what do you mean by intellectual doubts? Like my ability? Well, yeah, your personal opinions, philosophical opinions about it. I, I, I try to keep my personal opinions and philosophical ideas out of my books as much as possible. I've got no interest in... I, I'm not, I, never, ever using my novels to try to put forward a point of view or my point of view. And I don't like, I don't like reading novels where I feel like the novelist is trying to put his or her own opinions into the mouths of their characters. Um, so... I, I, you know, I did quite a lot of research for the book, and you know, I want it to seem as, as real as, you know, I want it to seem real to the reader. None of us, even the most aged person in the room, was there. So what what you're doing is creating a fictional world that seems believable, and uh, you know, I went about that by, you know, 
being fairly meticulous with my research, but there are some things that are very difficult to find out, um, especially when it comes to the, the very everyday things about the, the lives of crofters at that time. What kind of cutlery did they use? What was the cutlery made of? Nobody writes that in history books. Uh, but I think when you win the faith of the reader, um, the reader will then go with the world you've created. So, yeah, I mean, I, I also used, I mean, I used uh, the National Archive very close to here to look at, you know, um, trial reports and precognitions and trials and, you know, just reading these historical documents, you know, handwritten from 150 years ago is tremendously evocative and you, do, you also get, very crucially, a real sense of the kind of language that people wrote and spoke, well, wrote in at the time, which, you know, that did have an influence on the book reading, you know, beautifully written prisoners' letters from people who'd, you know, been, were murderers from Ben Bekula and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I went to some, some lengths. And, you know, I, I think it goes to this point about people thinking that the book is real and, you know, Googling, you know, Roderick McRae. Um, I, I, I would really like to create a sort of um, a fake web page about the case. Um, but if, because the book is set in a, a, a tiny village called Kaldui, which is a real place, and if you Google, you can all go home and do this, hmm. um, Google bed and breakfast in Kaldui, and what comes up? Is a, is a thing that says, there was never a murder in Michael <laughs> Dewey. Um, and it, you know, but actually, the, the owner of the, it's, there's about 10 houses there. The owner has actually written a very well-researched article with his own research about um, the, how life was in Kaldui at that time. So it's a kind of little, Responded you know. To it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there should be a, a His Bloody Project theme park. I, I, well, tours, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. definitely. I'm, I'm very up for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's another question around here. Graham, I absolutely need to free you from the tyranny <laughs> of eating Sainsbury's I know. sandwiches. <laughs> I, 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 I know you're right. I mean, I'm embarrassed. But oh. it's just, it's, it's, I'll tell you what it is. Um, you don't need to, because I'm going to tell you how to cure it. No. I... I want you to go on e go no no uh, go on to eBay when you go home tonight uh -huh. and buy yourself um, a sandwich. No, <laughs> buy yourself uh, a bread machine and uh, I, buy buy yourself um, uh, a three kilo bag of wholemeal flour. A packet of... Are you going to go through all the ingredients? <laughs> yeah, um, I am. I think, it's um, essential. A packet of pumpkin seeds and okay, a packet I think of we got sunflower the point. seeds. Um, I, I'll tell you what, I'm just lazy, and I'm actually quite a good cook, but when I'm going out to the library, I have too much stuff to carry, and um, I can't carry a lunchbox as well. And that, that's the reason. I'm, I'm, I'm totally ashamed of ever buying a supermarket sandwich. But, um, is, but is it that, for you, again, the routine... The routine, that routine gets you into the space where you can then write. So that the kind of the... the well, doctor. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. But yeah, so I, think, I think routines can be useful. And um, yeah, I once said that I always go, into the, go in the back door of yeah. uh, the library and come out the front door. Because I like making my journey that's circular. Um, <laughs> and it was because I'd been asked if I had any writing superstitions. Yeah. I don't really, so I sort of made that up. But now I keep getting asked about it. And Radio 4 came and did an interview, and they, they were like, oh, let's walk from your flat to the library. Yeah. Let's do that thing where you go in the back door. So now it's like I actually feel I have to do it now. 
um, <laughs> in, case you know, in order like, to fulfill. Right? Like, no, watching. no, no. Go back. You go in the back door. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry about the sandwiches. It's true. I should bake my own bread. Is it, oh, there's a question up at the back. Uh, his bloody project completely spellbound me. I read it in one go, which is uh, an amazing book altogether. And I have Highland background as well, so it took me right back to that period in history prior to the, you know, the Crofting Act and the complete chaos in the Highlands. Um, how did you feel about BBC Alibaba's um, TV dramatisation and sort of expose of your book? What was your reaction to that? Um, well, I mean, I, um, I, I thought they did a great job. I mean, I was... I wasn't involved in the making of the programme. Obviously, I'm in the programme. I, I was I, in the conversation we had in the run-up to it. I was keen that because it's a, it was a new book and relatively usually they make these kind of programmes about books which are kind of classics and everyone's kind of expected to have read it before um, before the programme goes out. And I was keen that the, the programme wouldn't contain too many spoilers about what happens in the book. Um, I thought they did a great job. I mean. I mean, if you're referring to, it doesn't. It, I don't mind at all if somebody has asked about my book and has a different view of something. I have absolutely no problem with that. And um, you know, there are historians, of course. I am not a historian. I'm a I'm a novelist. So I'm creating, as I was saying, you know, I'm creating a fictional world which is hopefully plausible to the reader. I, I went to, you know, as I say, you know, great lengths to make it as accurate as possible. But, you know, I, I, there were some things that I had to, to change in order to fit my narrative. And, um, you know, if there's a, there are people who know a great deal more about that period than I do, and, you know, they would, they would be able to say, oh, well, actually, I think, you know, they might have had two windows in their croft, you know. And, but, you know, I think, and that, but, yeah, that's, that's totally fine. Uh, you know, you used you use the word expose, which seems a curious <laughs> one. I, I thought it was a really good program, and I was really really flattered that they, took, they made an hour-long documentary about a book that had been out for two years. I mean, that's incredible. And, you know, the scenery was also amazing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I was, I was very happy with it. And, uh, you know, if, if somebody has a different point of view on something, it depends what it is, of course, but, you know, um, that's totally fine. Yeah. We could probably squeeze in one last question. Break free from time. There's probably nobody in the history of the Booker Prize that has got a haircut quite like yours. Can you tell me, or tell us about the genesis of it? I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's not really a great deal to say about it. It's, um, I, you know, I, um, I, uh, I did it once, and then, you know, I'm a creature of habit. And, uh, and, uh, you know, You're having cheese sandwich. Yeah, yeah. It's probably about, um, been, been there for about 15 years, and I, I fear that, you know, you know, A, if I didn't have my little quiff, People would just think I was bald. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Um, and, um, you know, they might not recognize me. They'd be like, who's that? That's not what you look Where's he? He's got a quiff. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of here to stay, I think, no matter how ridiculous it is. Um. <laughs> Wasn't quite the last question I was expecting. But um, Graham will be signing his book in a little George Street signing tent. You can also buy the book there, so you don't have to traverse too much of the... The, the scary highway of Saturday night. Um, <laughs> please do come for a book. Please do ask him more questions about bread, haircuts, yes. sandwiches, yeah. and literature. Yeah, bring like. me a sandwich, a yeah. good one. Um, <laughs> but please finally give a very, very, very warm thank you to Graham McCray for Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do we exit? Yes, shall we?
More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.